In the 20th century, a uh, theological controversy emerged within evangelicalism. Some were arguing that Jesus was the Savior, but they wanted to stop short of demanding that sinners who look to Jesus for salvation must also submit to Him as their Lord. In other words, you can be saved by Jesus, but you don't have to be ruled by Him. Salvation is one thing, but the necessity of obeying His commands from day to day is, is another. And lest you think that that is an unfair caricature, consider what Louis Sperry Schaefer wrote in 1948, quote, to impose a need to surrender the life to God as an added condition of salvation is most unreasonable. God, God's call to the unsaved is never said to be unto the Lordship of Christ, end quote. Surrendering one's life to God was never an added condition of salvation, as Dr. Schaefer wrote. It is the condition of salvation. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, He must be our Lord. Repentance and faith are required of all those who enter the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who repent and believe are actually obeying the commands of the Lord. They are giving up on the illusion of ruling their own lives and coming under the saving rule of Jesus. In the passage that we're going to be studying together this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 39, Jesus proves to us that he has the ability to save sinners through his sovereign lordship. It is in fact that because he is the sovereign Lord, he can graciously call forgive, and fellowship with sinners. And that is what we have the joy of thinking about together now. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, beginning there in verse 1. I believe that's on page 860 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us of what uh, Luke's gospel is about and what we've learned so far. From various angles, Luke is writing to announce the good news that the Savior of the world has arrived. The second Adam, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised King, Lord, Son of David, has come to, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. This message... This is Luke's message. This message, it inserts itself into every snapshot and story that we find in Luke's gospel. So far, we've seen the message of this good news emerge as Luke has told us that Jesus is our King. He's our Savior. He's our Teacher. Jesus is God's favored and faithful Son. He is a prophet. He is a physician. He is a preacher of the kingdom. This morning, as we study uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 30, uh, verse 1 to 39, we begin to see the nature of Jesus' kingdom emerge. We learn how you come to be a part of the kingdom. We learn that being a part of Jesus' kingdom means being forgiven of your sins and being invited into the joy of fellowship with God. We learn that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord of the kingdom. At first, this section of Scripture might seem to be kind of a random collection of stories. Uh, Luke begins several of these stories with the phrase, On one occasion, or in those days, 
this sounds like kind of like our colloquial. Once upon a time, it, it happened, um, and so it sounds like a new story is occurring. However, I, I hope that we'll see on a closer reading uh, of this text, we'll see there's actually deep connections between these apparently discrete stories. We see the threads and themes of sin, forgiveness, discipleship, calling, and questioning woven throughout them all. So how does it all tie together? Well, the short answer is through Jesus. Uh, In the first story of our unit, the Lord Jesus lays out his program of, of catching sinners for the purpose of catching more sinners. That's what we see in verses 1 through 11. What happens to those sinners who are caught by Jesus and his disciples? Well, they're healed of their disease of sin. That's what we see in chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. And this brings fellowship. It brings communion and joy in the living God. And not fasting and sorrow, as Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 make plain. And this ought to awaken us to the fact that something new has begun in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' arrival, the Lord has arrived. The long-expected Lord. In Luke chapter 5, verses 30, verse 1 to 39, we, we see Jesus demonstrate and declare that He is Lord. This, as one Christian scholar has suggested, is the central Christian confession regarding Jesus for the early church. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? In these verses we see, we learn that Jesus is the Lord who calls sinners. That Jesus is the Lord who forgives sinners. And Jesus is the Lord who communes with sinners. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about now. So let's turn and consider our first point. Jesus is the Lord who calls. Jesus is the Lord who calls. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 5. Let me read verses 1 through 11 now. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, 
we see that the crowds continue to coalesce around Jesus. Here they have cornered him by the sea in order to hear his teaching. And Jesus' only option is to take a boat and to take a seat. And after teaching the crowds from the boat, Jesus initiates another lesson for the men who own the boats. Jesus needs Peter, James, and John to come to recognize who he is and who they are in light of his identity. What is more, Jesus' identity has implications for their destiny. Jesus forever changes their lives by calling them to leave everything behind and follow him. Still, before we take kind of a closer look at Jesus' first call to Peter, James, and John, I want to make sure that we notice something about this crowd. Did you notice how Luke described them? He says there in verse 1 that they were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to sit up front in church, so that's certainly not going to be discouraged. Um, what it, it describes, though, is this desire of the crowd. They wanted to hear, and notice what Jesus is proclaiming. He is proclaiming the word of God. They wanted, this crowd wanted to hear the word of God taught. Your desire for hearing God's word might be a kind of spiritual barometer. Do you want to know if your heart is warm toward God? Well, do you want to hear God's word taught? Gathering to hear God's word taught is a discipline and it's a duty. But we should also pray that the Lord would make it our heart's desire. You can and should cultivate that desire. And I'd encourage you to do so by, by reading the passage that's going to be preached on uh, in the week in advance leading up to the Lord's Day. Uh, another thing that we can do, we should also pray for those who teach God's word. For before they herald God's word, they must hear it too. Pray that I, pray the elders of this congregation, other brothers who step up here to preach, pray that, that God would impress us, impress upon us the truth of his word so that we as servants of him might impress the truth of God's word upon the hearts of those who gather to hear. You'll notice in the middle of verse 3 that Jesus, he, he sat down to teach. And if you're wondering why, well, it's because that was the authoritative position that teachers took back in Jesus' day. So we, we've got to, kind of got things reversed. I'm standing, you're sitting. But in those days, the teacher would sit and the congregation would often stand. Uh, there's, another, uh, there's another thing that we, we noticed here. Uh, Luke, really in this, in Jesus sitting down, he's, he's kind of dropping a hint about Jesus' authority as this narrative progresses. There's, a, there's another one there in verse 5. There's Simon Peter. He calls Jesus Master. And Peter doesn't really want to do what the Master says. And who can blame him? Right? He's been fishing all night. And he was hoping to, to wrap up his labors for the day. That is why he and his business associates were cleaning their nets there in verse 2. Nevertheless, Peter submits to Jesus' authority. He obeys the master's commands. And I think we should learn from Peter here too. We must obey our master's commands despite our reservations. We must obey our master's commands no matter how tired and weary we are. Peter had been fishing all night and he he was done. Only Jesus said that he was not done. And in order to obey our master's commands when we are weary and worn, we must believe that he knows what is best. He does know best. 
because he knows everything. Peter obeyed, and we should too. Peter obeyed, and his nets overflowed. Obedience to our master's commands often brings blessing. I I don't think that we should expect the kind of material blessing that Peter uh, received. And I don't think that we should expect immediate blessing either. Very often the blessing which follows obedience or flows from obedience is delayed in our lives. Even where blessing immediately follows, our master may ask us to leave it behind. Just like Peter did. Notice there in verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that he left everything, including the great catch he, well, Jesus, had just made. Still, I think we should be careful here. We can't get lost in the miracle of this great catch. Uh, The the details of the overflowing boats are provided for the purpose of us being led to the overwhelming sense that Peter has. In view of this great miracle, what's Peter overwhelmed by? Take a look at verse 8. Peter is overwhelmed, strangely, by his sinfulness. In Jesus, you see, we are confronted with the Lord of creation. And simultaneously, we are confronted with, with our sinfulness. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that one of Jesus' disciples identifies him as Lord. This identification may have been surprising to Luke's original audience. For in the Greco-Roman world, Caesar is Lord. He is the supreme ruler. Not in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is Lord. And what we need to remember about Luke's gospel is that all throughout his gospel, including the first four chapters, the title Lord is ordinarily a reference to the God of the Old Testament, to Yahweh. So in kind of a backhanded way, Luke is telling us that Jesus is God. And in doing so with Peter's response... Luke is reminding us of some of the most basic truths of the Bible. God is holy and man is not. When man comes into the presence of God, he ought to recognize his sinfulness. On the other hand, sinful men ought to fear being in God's holy and righteous presence. On the other hand, what we are learning from Jesus is that he has come to draw near to sinners. And... To call sinners into his service. From now on, Peter and his companions will fish for men. As we see there in verse 10. This theme of fishing for men is not new or shouldn't be new for these Jewish fishermen. It's actually very old. Hundreds of years before Jesus made this statement, the prophet Jeremiah wrote that God would send many to go and fish for men in order to catch them. And bring them to judgment. You can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. But we need to remember that Jesus' arrival as Lord and God means that he is calling people to come under his saving rule. This is the year of the Lord's favor, as Jesus proclaimed in Luke chapter 4, 19. This is good news for sinners. And this good news turns the concept of fishing for men on its head. Instead of sending men out to catch them and bring them, To God for judgment, Jesus is intending to send men out in order that sinners might be saved from judgment. That they might be caught in the net of God's grace and mercy. This call to fish for men means that these disciples must follow Jesus. These men are not following Jesus at random. Luke has told us 
that Jesus has been in Simon's house, the house of Simon Peter's mother-in-law before, we know from John's Gospel that Jesus had actually already had significant interaction with these men. Uh, this call to follow him was in one sense not a, a kind of surprising call. What is a great surprise though is just how costly it is to follow Jesus. Think about it, they leave their nets. And according to Matthew's gospel, two of them leave their father with the nets. The end of verse 11 sums it up for us. They left everything and followed him. In this, we learn that following Jesus is worth all of the riches and relationships that the world has to offer. If Jesus has called you to be his disciple, then in one way or another, you've borne a cost. Perhaps you've sacrificed financially to follow him. Perhaps your family relationships have been challenged by your discipleship. Or perhaps your career hasn't taken off like it could have because of your allegiance to Jesus is greater than your allegiance to work and money. All of those who have followed Jesus have probably borne some cost in one way or another. And if in following Jesus we've not borne any cost, then perhaps we ought to examine our lives to see whether or not Jesus is really the one we're following. Christian, this call to go and fish for men is your call too. You are called to go out and fish for men, which means you've got to put your line in the water. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to make some statement about God, about His Son, about sin, about judgment, and about God's grace. Over these next several weeks, our, our culture, our, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends and family will become just a bit more sensitive to the subject of Easter. That doesn't mean they're going to celebrate it or believe that Jesus got up from the dead, but our culture has an awareness that Christians are celebrating something this season. Why not invite them in? Why not ask them to consider what Easter is all about? Uh, why don't you take a card, like this one, found at the back or in the, uh, the racks there, and invite them to church? You can find these racks, as I said, in the lobby. You could take one. You could take five. You could take more. Uh, give them to your neighbors in the week leading up to Easter with a simple invitation to church. Put some cards on your desk. Ask a coworker. To go out to lunch with you. Say to him, look, I'm hungry. And I really want to talk to you about Jesus. Do you want to have lunch together? Put yourself out there. I'll let you ask me anything you want about being a Christian. <coughs> Invite them to have a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what a, a privilege and joy we have not only to be called by Jesus, but to call others to come to Jesus. Jesus, in our text, has he's caught a few good men. And they're off to catch some more. A nagging question at this point might be, what will Jesus do when he catches them? He will forgive them. That's what we learn in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. Jesus is the Lord who forgives. Jesus is the Lord who forgives. Uh, read Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26 now. 
while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in but because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on, lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. These verses are comprised of two healing scenes. The healing of a leper and the healing of a paralytic. The importance of these scenes is that they continue to reveal Jesus' power over disease and disability. But the truth is that Jesus is encountering, when he is encountering disease and disability, he is encountering and overcoming the destruction that sin has ushered into our world with the fall of Adam and Eve. In the second scene, we especially learn that Jesus has come to overcome sin and its destructive power. The Lord Jesus has come not merely to heal, but also to forgive. Indeed, His healing demonstrates His authority to forgive. I love the, the tenderness that Jesus displays in verses 12 to 15. Jesus is the one who is perfectly clean, and he is also perfectly compassionate. A leper, an unclean man, comes to Jesus, he falls prostrate before him, and he pleads with him. Lepers in that day, you see, they lived in a constant state of shame. By law, they, they even had to kind of shame themselves. In public, they had to put their hands over their mouths and cry out, unclean! unclean, so that people would stay away from them. 
I wonder if you have ever felt this way. Have you ever felt shame? Have you ever felt unclean? Uh, Maybe there are times in your life where you have been so ashamed of your sin that rather than draw near to God and His people, you've wanted to run away from God and His people. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the truth is that we are unclean, spiritually unclean. We know we are unclean. And our Lord knows that we are unclean. And still, He loves us and is willing to make us clean. We must believe this like the leper did. Though his body was filthy, his heart, the heart of this leper was filled with faith. Verse 12 12 reveals that he believes that Jesus can make him clean. And here is a man who lays himself out before Jesus, knowing that he has nothing to give. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like you and me? All this leper has to give is a disease that makes others unclean. That is what would happen if a leper touched another person. He would make that person ceremonially unclean, unable to gather at the temple or the the tabernacle back in those days. Again, what do we have to offer Jesus but our disease of sin? Jesus, he reaches out and touches this man. Due to his disease, his condition, this leper would have known very little physical care or affection from other people. He may not have been touched by another person for a long time. And here Jesus, knowing his distress and the desire of his heart, he touches him. And to our surprise, to the leper's great joy, rather than Jesus being made unclean, By this leper, the man is made miraculously clean. And Luke stresses the immediacy of Jesus' healing power. Immediately, Luke says, immediately the leprosy left him. That is how powerful Jesus is. Our world is filled with all kinds of sickness. And it is my prayer that our hearts would always be filled with compassion when we come across those who suffer. Sin has brought great suffering into our world. And every person, every human person who suffers bears the image of God. They reflect our Lord and are immensely valuable to Him. Don't ever grow callous to the damage and the destruction that disobedience has ushered into our world. We must always live like our Lord Jesus Christ, who displayed compassion toward those who suffered. We learn in verse 14 that Jesus commands the leper who has been healed to quietly follow the instructions of the law. Jesus almost certainly has in view obedience to the laws found in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, which is commonly called the manual of purity. What we need to recognize about those Old Testament laws is that though they dealt with physical realities, tangible categories of what was clean and unclean, they pointed to spiritual realities. There was and is a difference between God and man. God is perfectly holy or clean. And man is neither holy nor clean. That is why the manual of purity in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, contains God's declaration. God says, be holy, for I am holy. The law's constant declaration in that 
those chapters. This is unclean. That is unclean. You are unclean. The law's constant declaration was not meant to drive the people of Israel to despair. It was meant to drive them to God. Go to God and be made clean. And that's exactly what this leper did. Jesus tells the man to go and show himself to the priest and to offer the gift that Moses commanded. This is a command for the man to abide by the prescriptions of Leviticus 14. But it is more than that too. More than simply telling the man what he wanted him to do, Jesus tells the man why he wanted him to do it. Jesus wanted the priests, the Jewish religious leaders, to see the proof that he, Jesus, is the Lord who is clean. The God who makes sinners clean. We should also note that Jesus didn't have to go to the priest to be declared clean. And that's because he was not made unclean by this leper. If the additional healings of verse 15 there, you'll see Jesus healed many more. If these additional healings don't prove his power as Lord to the Jewish religious leaders, well then Jesus will have to prove his power and authority in their presence. And that's precisely what he does in verses 17 through 26 when Jesus heals the paralytic. Before we kind of look closer at that amazing miracle, consider the very ordinary thing Jesus does in verse 16. He gets away to a desolate place to pray. He wants to talk to his heavenly father. We should want the same thing. Uh, we should want that time of communion with our Father each day and throughout the day. And, and though we don't have to go into the wilderness, uh, sometimes we need to go and find a quiet place to pray. Jesus needed to pray for a whole host of reasons. And one of them was because he was about to face a lot of conflict. How about you? Are, are your days conflict-free? How much more do we need to pray and be alone with our God? Jesus was about to face conflict. And Luke, he sets up this confrontation and conflict in kind of an amusing way. He gets the players and the pieces in place. Verse 17 notes that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. And he notes, oh, and by the way, uh, Jesus has the power to heal. Boy, I wonder what's going to happen. Well, the first thing that happens is that some men brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And be sure to note their determination in verses 18 and 19. They were trying to get him in before Jesus, but they couldn't. So they open the roof and lower him down. They had faith in Jesus. It's also true that the paralyzed man had great faith in Jesus, that Jesus could heal him as well. When Luke tells us in verse 20 that Jesus saw their faith, the paralytic is certainly included in Jesus' field of vision. It's wonderful that Jesus saw their faith. But what he said to the paralyzed man was even more remarkable. Jesus told him that his sins were forgiven. And this should make us, as we're kind of reading along, this should make us stop and say, wait, what did Jesus just say? M many people had been brought to him and healed of their diseases, their, uh, their infirmities, with very little discussion about sin. So this is, this is kind of a new response. Jesus doesn't immediately deal with the man's sickness, his paralysis. He deals with his sin. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, they're sitting there, 
And they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And Luke makes clear to us that they didn't like this. In fact, they thought that Jesus had just committed blasphemy. Now, my sense is that after reading these verses, we, we kind of all emotionally begin to side with Jesus, right? He's so kind and merciful. He's caring for so many people. But I'm not sure that we should look down on the Pharisees and the scribes for their reaction. They rightly understand that God, that only God, can forgive sins. They rightly understand that when Jesus tells the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven, that Jesus is claiming to be God. They understand, but they don't believe. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and scribes on their own terms. Jesus knows that the teachers of the law will agree with him that it's, it's easier to say to someone, you know, your, your sins are forgiven, rather than get up. There's no immediate visible way to kind of prove that someone's sins have been forgiven. On the other hand, if you tell a paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home, well, then if the results aren't immediate, you know the person is a liar. So just like that leper proved to the religious leaders that Jesus is Lord by his healing, so Jesus proves to these religious leaders by this healing that he does have the authority on earth to forgive sins. He literally declares that he has the authority to forgive sins when he says to them, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns and says to the leper, I say to you, rise Take up your bed and go home. Jesus proves it to them. He does something else there too, you'll notice, so that you may know the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man in their presence. That title, Son of Man, is a Jewish messianic title. It's a title that we find in Daniel chapter 7. We're told that the Son of Man will be given authority and power and dominion. He will have an everlasting kingdom. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. But what becomes clear as the Gospel of Luke unfolds is that the Jews were looking for a political Messiah. But here Jesus is showing that the Messiah, the Son of Man, was not establishing a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Friend, what about you? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority, power, and love to forgive you of your sins? To make you clean? He does. I wonder if you feel the force and power of these two scenes. I wonder if you recognize that you are sick with sin. I wonder if you recognize that you are a spiritual leper. I wonder if you recognize sin's paralyzing power in your life. Mired in it, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot get up. Do you recognize that you are a spiritual paralytic? Apart from Jesus, this is the condition of every man, woman, and child. We have all sinned. We really don't have to look very hard in our lives to see sin. We have all lived our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Our sin, it makes us unclean before God. We are spiritual lepers. And if we are to be received into God's presence, into heaven, and accepted as righteous in God's sight, then atonement needs to be made for our sin. 
We need to be cleansed. A sacrifice has to be offered. Without being made clean and our sins being forgiven by Jesus, we would be forever cut off from God. We would be forever shut out of His presence, just like the lepers of Israel were shut outside the camp in the Old Testament. Only, this is infinitely worse because it is an eternal banishment from God's benevolence in order that we might endure God's wrath. The good news is that Jesus is the Lord who forgives. He came to make us clean. He lived the life of perfect obedience to God. He never sinned. He was never made unclean. He always made the unclean clean. He did what we can't do. He did what we needed Him to do. He gave His life on the cross for us. He stood in our place and bore the punishment that was due for our sins. He was banished, forsaken by God on the cross. All. So that if we would turn from our sins and place our faith in Him, believing that His blood shed on the cross cleanses us from all of our transgressions, that we would be accepted as clean and righteous in God's sight. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Him from the dead, proving to us all that His blood sacrifice on behalf of sinners was acceptable in God's sight. This is why the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, if you are to be saved by Christ, then you need to say, like this leper, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I promise you this, if you come to Jesus in genuine repentance and faith with that request, his answer will be what he said to this leper. I will be clean. So friend, believe. Believe that Jesus lived for you, that he died for you, and that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to be healed by Jesus of this disease of sin that we all have, what it means to be forgiven, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend or family member you came here with this morning. There's nothing more glorious than receiving and rejoicing in this good news. The Lord Jesus has come to forgive sinners. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us learn from the leper and the paralytic the paralyzed man. The leper, he obeyed Jesus' command. The paralytic, he went out glorifying God. Each day, let us give thanks and praise to God for the forgiveness of our sins and for our cleansing. We should have the same reaction of the crowd. We should be amazed and filled with awe and recognize that in our salvation from sin, we should recognize the extraordinary grace of God in pouring out His grace upon us, God has loved the unlovely. More than that, in pouring out His grace upon us, He has guaranteed our home in glory with Him. As John Newton said in his hymn, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We're going home like that leper. 
let's go home with joy, rejoicing in the forgiveness of our God. What Luke wants us to understand from this narrative is that Jesus is God. He is the one that God promised in the Old Testament. He has the authority to forgive sins. And that that's what he came to do. And the whole purpose of calling and forgiving sinners is for God to commune with them. After all, the Lord himself said in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in Luke chapter 5 verses 27 through 39, we see that the Lord's promise is coming true as we see Jesus is the Lord who communes. Jesus is the Lord who communes with sinners. And this is the next point that we want to consider. And as we do, let's read verses 27 to 39. Verses 27 to 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece... Uh, from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. Luke chapter 5 verses 27 through 39 revolve around the themes of fellowship, uh, fellowshipping, feasting, Faking and fasting. The Lord Jesus calls a tax collector and a sinner to follow him. Having become one of his disciples, Levi, who we know to be Matthew, the author of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Levi, he throws a party at his home. And this is not surprising. Almost, almost every time sinners are forgiven, uh, those stories are followed by scenes of joy. Jesus communes with a bunch of sinners and foul men at this party. But there are also some fakers there. Some who pretend they don't need Jesus when they really do. And this leads Jesus to explain to them what's going on here. And so he launches into various word pictures and parables. Levi, more commonly Matthew, he was a Jew. He was responsible to go around to collect taxes from his fellow Jews. Jewish tax collectors in the Roman Empire were essentially perceived to be thieves and cheats as they would charge way above their needs. And if that was not enough, they were also considered to be unclean, according to Jewish law. The Lord Jesus has come to call all kinds of people. Levi, 
or Matthew's response, is exactly the same as Peter, James, and John. Verse 28 there, you'll notice, tells us that he left everything and followed Jesus. It's not all he did. He threw a party for his fellow tax collectors and sinners. We don't have much information on who these sinners were, but they couldn't have been much worse than the tax collectors. And even if they were different, and they likely were, uh, the tax collectors were still sinners nonetheless. And just pause for a moment and I'll ask you a question. Have you ever thought about throwing a party as an evangelistic strategy? Have you ever thought about inviting your unbelieving friends and your church friends over at the same time in the hopes of having conversations about Jesus? Maybe Levi is onto something here. Or has he made a fatal error? I think he's onto something here, by the way. But conflict, it emerges at this party. The Pharisees and scribes are found grumbling at this feast of joy. They sit in judgment on Jesus as he sits and communes with sinners. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus' associations with sinners were unacceptable. Why should sinners be afforded the benefits of religion when they don't even regularly practice it? To secular eyes, Levi isn't gaining anything by associating himself with Jesus. And to spiritually blind eyes, Jesus isn't gaining anything by bringing an unclean tax collector into his new religious community. But perhaps that's just the point. Jesus is forming a new religious community. And it is a community that's not centered around public opinion or heartless religion, but around the Lord Jesus Christ. The assumptions of the Pharisees are amazing. They seem to assume that they're nothing like the people that Jesus is associating with. They're not sinners. They're not like those tax collectors who are greedy and want to manipulate circumstances and bring about their own prosperity. Or are they? Is it any better to pretend to know and love God when you don't really know and love God? The Pharisees would set up rules and regulations not found in the scriptures to oppress the people and to benefit themselves. Are the Pharisees really unlike these tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus was associating? What is Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question? Well, before getting really blunt, Jesus uses a health analogy. He's a physician who has come for the sick. And as careful readers, let's not forget that Jesus has just healed a bunch of sick people, a leper, a paralytic, and many people with infirmities. Then Jesus delivers the truth plainly. He did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus says this, he, he's basically saying that he came for people who recognize their need. Do the Pharisees recognize their need for Jesus? Do we? Our culture discourages us from thinking of ourselves as sinners. Psychologists, I think, would urge us not to think that way because it kind of propagates a negative self-image, which, which they say is kind of unhealthy. It's an unhealthy way to kind of view yourself. Actually, to pretend that you are well when you are really sick is unhealthy, and it will lead to death. We are all sinners, and we are all in need of Jesus, the only one who can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 33, you'll notice that the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, it just continues on. The Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples don't fast. 
And they're clearly oblivious to what's going on with Jesus and these sinners. So through a word picture and metaphors and parable, Jesus explains. In other words, Jesus is trying to explain what is going on from several different angles. Jesus first answers the question with a question there in verse 34. Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? See, Jesus' question reveals that it was time to celebrate. Why? This is a time of joy and celebration because the bridegroom is here. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one who has come to win for himself a bride. He has come to die for his bride and through his death to unite his bride to himself. At Jesus' death, he will be taken away for a short period of time. And that will be a time of mourning and fasting, verse 35. But right now, the bridegroom is here. And this is a time of joy. The Lord has come. This is a new era. And that is what the second and third metaphors get at. A new garment is needed. New wineskins are needed. But then Jesus does something strange in verse 39. Did you catch it? In verse 39, he says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. After two examples of the new being kind of needed or preferred in some ways, suddenly the old is preferred. Why? Old wine is better than new wine. Of course, this is generally true when it comes to wine, but why is Jesus now saying that the old is preferred to the new? You see, this last comment, it explains why the Pharisees and the scribes are rejecting Jesus. They are unwilling to let go of their old paradigm of what the Lord would come to do. They did not think that the Lord would come to commune with sinners. And that is why they sit in judgment upon Jesus. Jesus' response to a simple question about fasting reveals that he's talking about much more than fasting. He is talking about how all of redemptive history has been a preparation for his arrival. And that now the bridegroom has come. The experience is new for the people of Jesus' day. But it is an old expectation. For it was promised long ago in the scriptures. Jesus is the Lord who has come to commune with sinners. Because as God said in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This truth that Jesus is the Lord who has come to commune with sinners should fill us with joy. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. We, we began this morning by considering the truth that Jesus displays and declares his saving power through his authority to rule as Lord. He is the Lord of creation who bids fish to jump into a net and disciples to follow him. He is the Lord of mercy who heals as he commands diseases to depart. He is the Lord who forgives, who commands those with broken bodies to rise up and walk. He is the Lord who not only sits down to teach, but who sits down to eat and commune with sinners like you and me. This is why we give our lives to him, because he is the most gracious Lord. Let's pray together.